0: Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. On today... July 28th, 2023, I'm excited to welcome Lawrence Reed to talk about America's best and worst presidents, along with the characteristics that define these sorts of leaders and the important things to look for. Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education and of the Mackinac, I just learned how to pronounce that, Center for Public Policy. He is currently the Humphreys Family Senior Fellow at FEE, and you should visit his website, lawrencewreed.com. We'll put that in the extras. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you, Juliette. I appreciate your having me.
0: So, before we get started, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't?
1: Well, I thought about uh, this uh, because I anticipated you're asking it. And uh, what I'm about to say is perhaps not something that Uh, people your age don't know. It's that they generally and seriously underappreciate it. And that is that uh, their personal character is going to put either a floor or a ceiling over how far they can go in life. And that uh, investing in one's personal character at the earliest possible age, when you realize how important it is, is um, an investment that you'll never regret. And so uh when I talk to young audiences and have an opportunity to explain this, I tell them that uh, the one thing for sure they will never regret uh late in life if they start investing in it now uh would be things like their personal honesty, uh humility, and by humility, I mean an intellectual humility, recognizing that uh, as much as they may know. There's still a universe of knowledge out there that they don't know, and other attributes of strong character like responsibility, courage, and gratitude. Uh, investing in those things will make you a person of influence and uh, someone who can leave the world in a better place uh, than you found. it. That's
0: a brilliant piece of advice. I love that. Um, well, I guess without further ado, because this is directly relevant, let's get started. So Okay. Historically, what has been the role of president we we talk about how the presidents of the United States wear a lot of hats, but how is that different from other countries?
1: Well, in America, the president of course, is the chief executive officer, uh, but he or she is not an emperor, a dictator or uh, you know an all powerful uh, person as in some places uh, a Person in a similar position might be. Uh, Our presidents are elected, uh, but that position has, I think, to a great degree, unfortunately, evolved over the decades since our first one, George Washington. In the direction of um, the aggregation of more power in the hands of a president, and uh, as one who believes in limited government uh, and the original Constitution, I'm a little disturbed by that. But I'm still very happy by the fact that a president of the United States is not a monarch, not a dictator, can only serve two terms. Uh, we fixed that problem after Roosevelt, and um, and also that the people do have some say, uh, not only in who that person is, but also how long they stay in office, and they can even run against them uh, if if uh, a person wants to. So those are things I'm still very grateful for.
0: So I guess we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, I think, but the executive has grown. Um, kind of how did that happen, and what do you think the role of the president should be now na- How has it changed in a way that you should we revert to what it was once, and how would that happen? Maybe.
1: Well, as a believer in in limited government and the Constitution, I'm one who believes that uh, perhaps all branches of government, uh, certainly the executive and the legislative, uh, should uh, be curtailed that they have exceeded their authority, and that has happened for a number of reasons. One is. That the American people of recent generations are not the same American people of the first few generations in our country 's history. Uh, I think uh, uh, in terms of our uh, mentality our thinking towards things like the role of government, uh, we have changed as a people. We rely upon government for far more things than our original founders intended us to, and that 's come as a result of both uh, a philosophy that's taken root in the country, that uh, we can have good and big government at the same time if we put the right people in charge of it. I quarrel with that uh, uh, strenuously. But that's a philosophy that has sort of taken root in the country. And also, we've had some serious events that have um, uh, conditioned people to think that more government is the answer. Uh, needless to say, the Great Depression is a leading contender in that category, even though it was caused by government itself. But nonetheless, it produced uh, such uh, catastrophic conditions that many Americans thought, well, we have to have more government, just like my teacher told me. <laughs> um, that's a, perhaps another issue for another day. But uh, but those Events like that, World War One certainly, and other events have uh, pushed us in the direction of giving government more power than uh, our earliest Americans ever thought it should have.
0: Are there some traits among presidents that they all have in common, for better or for worse? I mean, I know that the role of president has kind of changed. Um But does it differ from person to person or by historical context? Or are there things that are true of almost every presidency, of of a president generally?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, until recently, I used to say that every single one of them wanted to get elected and, if possible, reelected. But then there may be one exception to that, and that is James Garfield, who was elected in 1880, he was perhaps, uh, not perhaps, but most assuredly, the most reluctant um, presidential contender. He went to the Republican Convention in uh, 1880, uh, intending to place a nomination the name of another man. But he gave such a good speech that the crowd turned away from his candidate and all the others and instead uh, started clamoring for Garfield. And he went around to the state delegations at that convention saying, stop voting for me. I don't want the job. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was uh, so well respected and liked that on I think it was the 36th ballot. He got the nomination and he was sick to his stomach and left the convention at that point. <laughs> but he was prevailed upon to accept the nomination. And he ran and he won. Uh, actually, that quality in Garfield, not really wanting the job, not lusting after it, and certainly not willing to do anything to get it uh is endearing to me but otherwise uh um, you know, the desire to get the office is certainly pretty common with all of them but also um by and large, with a few exceptions uh these have been men who have uh shown some leadership abilities in one walk of life or another, if not in politics, perhaps in business or in uh, the military uh, or in government, Um, you have to have some leadership qualities, I think, uh, to ever get the job. Um, and by that, I, I mean leadership qualities in a positive sense. The, uh, the notion of commanding the respect of people because of the example that you set, not by barking orders or using coercion to get your way. Um, so they all had that uh, to some degree or another. But they also had very wide-ranging personalities, some uh, uh, not so good and others uh, just uh, just super admirable. So it's quite a varied lot, really, the 46 presidents we've had. Uh, But maybe at least some leadership qualities would be common among them all.
0: So, I mean, about about Garfield briefly, is there kind of – is there a fine line between – not necessarily wanting to be president, not lusting after it, as you said, and being a good president. I would think you should want someone who wants to lead to a certain extent. I mean, I know George Washington didn't entirely want to lead, but he still did it. So did Garfield live up to that duty almost in the same way or in a similar way? Or do you th- do you think it always plays out?
1: Well, I think that Garfield, uh, had he lived, he only served about five months because he was uh, shot in uh, July. He took office in March of eighty-one, eighteen eighty-one, 1881 uh, was shot by a would-be assassin in July, lingered until he died in September. So he wasn't in office very long. But the brief time that he was, uh, he did show some terrific qualities. I think that had he lived, he might uh, – be among uh, the better presidents that we've had. I think he was a man of honesty and integrity. He, uh, in the time he had, he tried to do uh, what he thought was right, and usually it was. And uh, he had some solid principles. And One of the things that I've learned about him that has uh, really uh, endeared him to me, aside from not lusting for the office... He understood money and monetary policy better than most presidents. He gave a speech when he was a member of Congress on the floor of the House, several hours long with just a stitch of notes in which he traced the monetary history of uh, uh, the United States and Great Britain and uh, came to some remarkably good conclusions, namely that whenever we have had monetary troubles like runaway inflation, uh, bank closures and depressions and things like that. He, th- he said it was all, always because of some intervention by government that screwed up the money and credit supply. And when I read that speech, I thought, holy cow, he's anticipating the great uh, Austrian economists of the 20th century, um, you know, by a good uh, half century here. Uh Uh, That that really impressed me. Uh, The man was uh, smarter than probably most people who knew him uh, ever gave him credit for.
0: So I want to get back to this point, but just to satiate my curiosity, because I have to admit, I don't really know a ton about Garfield. Um, Why did he get assassinated? Does that show that someone isn't likable? I don't know.
1: Uh, well, he was shot by a disgruntled office seeker, uh, likely deranged. Uh, Charles Guiteau was his name. And Guiteau, because he worked in Garfield's campaign, not close enough to the candidate to, you know, to know him personally uh, or vice versa. But uh, he had it in his mind that because he worked to elect Garfield that he was entitled to some uh, political appointment. And uh, when Garfield was elected, Guiteau wrote several letters that uh, either never made their way to the president or um, uh, the, the president simply rejected for one reason or another. I don't know. But um, he didn't get the appointment and he thought he was wronged because of it. And so he decided he was going to uh, shoot the president. And he did. I think it was at the Baltimore radio, uh, rail station. uh so, a very unfortunate event because as I say I think Garfield would have proved to be a very good president.
0: And that I mean kind of says something about political favors, I think. Because yeah. well, I don't know how many people would how many disgruntled hoping to be uh appointees would do that nowadays. Well, I don't know, maybe they would, but so there's that kind of historical change but also now, at least this is my impression, and this could be wrong. Favors are have more traction, and and this kind of like trading. But also, I don't know. Maybe Washington has been known as a place where transactional things occur all the time. So, I, I don't know. Um, but I no. guess.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Well, you've touched, uh, Juliet, on uh, something I mentioned earlier about the growth of the power of uh, the government in the, both the executive and the legislative branches. And this is one testimony to it. The fact that uh, the president ha- does have today an immense amount of power he can distribute. Uh, he can offer appointments uh, and make appointments to positions that have enormous influence over the economy and over the lives of other people. Um, and so there are you know, lots of people out there who would love to have power. They lust for it. And uh, the way to get it, some of them think, is to get close to those who have it and lobby them for appointments or handouts, subsidies, whatever they can get from this gargantuan government that now has all these favors to pass out. It's very corrupting, not only of government itself, but of the people who seek its power.
0: So I kind of want to follow down this line, but tie it, back to Garfield, and I think this will tie into the greater conversation. Um, So you, you mentioned in talking about him and in talking about presidents generally character, and you mentioned this in your response to the first question of how important it is. So I guess, how important is that to the policies or the, I don't know a better word than like vibe of your administration? I know that the president himself at this point has only grown in the influence over the current administration that they preside over. But how important is character to the behavior of an administration or to the things that happen under that president?
1: I think character is very important uh, in any position, not simply that of uh, president of the United States. as I mentioned earlier, it either puts a floor under how far you can go or it puts a ceiling over how far you can go. And it determines to a considerable extent uh, how you act. A person of solid character um, maybe can make it through four years or eight years of government and be minimally corrupted. <laughs> but that's a challenge. Uh, even those with the best of character can be brought low, by uh, the very corrupting influence of power and all the things the president uh, is supposed to do these days. But uh, if you've got solid character, if you're honest and you believe that uh, truth is worth fighting for, it's a value in and of itself, it isn't simply a convenience that you can toss to the wind for personal short-term political advantage, then you have a chance to be a great president. And also, if you're humble, if you're humble enough to realize that though you may be a very important person, known by just about everybody, that doesn't mean that you know uh, what you think you might know. It doesn't mean that you know how to live the lives of 330 million other people. It doesn't mean you know how to plan an economy. Nobody does. So, uh, if if a president remains humble and doesn't think that because he has this office he's got all these magical powers and abilities, um, then he has a chance to be a great president. Uh, but he also has to be uh, uh, a good leader in the sense he has to set a, a good example. Because if uh, your underlings, if your staff, if the government as a whole, uh, if the people in it come to think that uh, hey. Um, this is a rotten fish and it stinks from the head down, then they feel like they've got a license to misbehave. I mean, if the president at the top is misbehaving, setting a poor example, engaging in corruption, uh, then, you know, that's kind of like licensing the rest of the government uh, to do the same. Um, But if you know if you serve in an administration, that this is a president who means business, who will not tolerate corruption and malfeasance and uh, uh, any overbearing uh, or unconstitutional actions. If you know he'll hold you accountable, then you're going to maybe clean up your act. Um, So the the president does set the the table and and how he sets it really is a function of his character.
0: So on the one hand, you have this and then the growth of the power of the executive and the amount of power you can trade for your own gain inevitably. Um, But then also I think the Garfield example really amazingly shows something that I think I always point to Abraham Lincoln and I'm like, read the Lyceum address. It's awesome. Um, Everyone read the Lyceum address. Um, But I think you can kind of very clearly and pretty indisputably see a shift from Presidents that that grappled with what the role they played was and where we can still read about Abraham Lincoln's political philosophy or Garfield's takes on monetary policy. Um, whereas now, that's not why we would read the things that they've said or written. Um, and I don't know. I guess the question becomes like, how much— had, Why has the presidency changed from a very duty-oriented, very responsible for how you carry yourself in a lot of ways? I I think I can say that. An intellectual president to more of a political, almost like conniving type of president. Um, Why why has that shift occurred? Because I think all of these things kind of trend similarly.
1: Yeah, uh, Lord Acton perhaps gave us uh, the best answer to your question when he told us famously that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know of any other motivation that is more destructive uh, to a society than the lust for power. It can take uh uh, the best of people and grind them up and and uh, make them corrupt and and compromise their character sometimes totally. Um, so that that's part of the problem. That uh, and the bigger government gets, incidentally, the more corrupt it becomes. Almost by definition, the more favors it has to pass out, the more people are going to do just about anything to either get in charge of it so they can get more for themselves or to keep it at bay because it's just all over their, uh, the place. It's all over their lives. So they want to uh, you know, get in charge of it to get something or, or get it off their back. And that tends to produce endless corruption, which then has the effect of discouraging truly good people from ever seeking office. Uh, I mean, today, how many times have you heard a good person, one that you think, wow, that person would make a good president or a congressman or whatever? How many times have you heard such good people say, but not me? I, why would I want to sully my reputation and dirty my hands by getting involved in that mess? Uh, then you see scumbags who are more than happy uh, to seek uh, power in public office. And so what you end up with, if this trend isn't reversed, uh, is the worst of both worlds. Uh, big government controlled by bad people. Uh, and that's very opposite to what uh, our founders intended. They they wanted to see virtue in people, uh, but even that they knew would have to be checked by the institutions of a limited government. And uh, uh, And today I think most of our founders would be appalled if they saw that what we have built on the edifice that they created is big government run by bad people.
0: So I guess, is there something structural where we didn't necessarily select for the worst or presidents that we would not like to emulate character-wise, maybe? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there something that could be done at, I'm, I'm thinking kind of public choice, structural way that we elect presidents or that, They're incentivized to run kind of this like lusting for office. Is there a way to structurally prevent against that? Because I've recently been really challenged in the idea that we actually do need good people in government. And I do think there is merit to that. But I still really staunchly in the camp that we need to set up the institution so that even if it's not the best person, then they can't mess up so bad. Or even if it's a good person, they can't be tempted to mess up so bad Uh, because even people with great character are not absolutely flawless. So is there something that could be done?
1: Yeah, institutionally, uh, there are some things that would be helpful in reversing these bad trends. One would be uh, probably term limits. I think that would be helpful, term limits for members of Congress. Uh, Maybe another structural institution would be uh, uh, repeal of the income tax (laughs) because that has been an engine for the growth of government and also for, uh, for people to demagogue their way to office by appealing to people's baser instincts at their expense. And maybe we could also undo some of the prior structural changes we made in the country that have been not helpful, that have been in the wrong direction. Um, For instance, uh, our founders intended the um, Senate in Washington to be made up of appointees from the states by state legislatures. And then the 17th Amendment came along uh, about 110 years ago that changed that and said, no, uh, we're going to require that senators be popularly elected in their states and take it out of the hand of the legislatures. At the time, a lot of people said, well, we got to do this because legislatures are corrupt and they're sending their cronies to Washington. And there was some of that, no question. But it's uh, been shown by uh, uh, Todd Zawicki and other economists and historians that what we ended up doing with the 17th Amendment was simply transferring corruption from the legislatures to uh, to, <laughs> to Washington. Uh, we're not getting any cleaner federal government because of that amendment. But we do get government now that imposes things on the states that might never have happened if the senators had been responsive directly uh, to the, to the uh, state legislators. We get unfunded mandates, for instance, imposed upon the states by uh, the federal government, in part because senators Uh, don't pay a penalty directly for imposing on their state legislatures back home uh, measures that the federal government wants them to carry out. So, uh, you know, that's one example that we could uh, undo, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. Listeners, go check out my episode with Todd Zwicky, the one and only on this very topic. It's a great one. It was from a while ago, but... Maybe you'll see that i've I've grown up a little bit, but it's still an amazing episode, so go check it out. Um I think kind of still along these lines, but as we get into the best and worst presidents, I, I want to ask about how we even go about judging a president because we do have a system of checks and balances, and so it's sometimes difficult to separate a president from. Things that happened under them and in their administration or historical things that mean that the role of the presidency has been different. Um, So how should we be considering economics or their love of America or. I don't know what what should we consider and are there things to be more lenient about in judgment and are there things obviously character is a big one, but are there things that we should really weigh heavily on when we judge a president.
1: Well, the first duty of a president that he swears uh, the moment he's uh, inaugurated uh, is to uphold and defend and protect the Constitution. And so uh, that's one of the criteria by which I judge a person who holds that position. I want to know, did they do their job uh, to uphold the Constitution? Were they faithful to it? Or were they stretching it beyond the bounds of reason to encompass uh, ever more powers for government we 've had both kinds of presidents in our history the but the best ones in my mind are those who said, "Look, my job description is the Constitution, and i 'm going to stick to it because it 's there for a reason when we begin to cut corners uh, you know that 's a slippery slope to the demise of, of freedom that 's my job, and i 'm going to do it and uh, I like a president who tells people. Oh, sorry, as much as you may want that, it's not in the Constitution. It's not within my power to give it to you. If you want it badly enough, there's a procedure by which the Constitution can be amended. And I may or may not support that. But in any event, don't ask me to do things that aren't in the Constitution. I admire that in someone because it means they they've put the future of the country and their oath of office above short-term political advantage and vote buying and so much of that kind of corruption that's occurring now under our overbearing government. So that's one thing. And there of course, personal honesty is another. I mean, you could have a good president who adheres to the Constitution, but maybe on the side, um, he is uh, personally corrupt and uh, in various ways. And that Certainly, we should weigh that against them. I don't want a corrupt person, even a corrupt uh, limited government person in office. I want somebody who's good all the way around. Um, so that's another thing. You know, how they handle particular crises is usually uh, a, a measure of a president's performance. Uh, both the left and the right and in between uh, use that as a criteria, but they differ on what they would like to see in a president. you know, a, a, a socialist would love to see a president handle an economic crisis by bestowing new powers upon the government and telling people what to do. Whereas somebody of my persuasion would say, uh, no, I want to see a president who recognizing recognizes when government causes the problem in the first place, and instead of adding to its powers, will strip away the ones that cause the problem.
0: Do you think there's a common ground, obviously in terms of actual policy outcomes, there's kind of a very normative side of things where if you think we should have more welfare, you're going to like the president who gives more welfare versus someone who doesn't. But is there a common ground in recognizing great presidents other than necessarily that across the political spectrum?
1: I think almost everybody respects a leader, a president who says what he means and means what he says, who has principles, who isn't just all over the place for short-term political advantage. I think, you know, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, there's something in just about all of us that respects somebody who says, I do believe in certain things. Here uh, are those things. And I will do the best I can to faithfully uh, carry out those principles that I also told people I believed in during the election. I don't care for those who tell you one thing in the election and do something different once they get elected. So we we respect people of principle, even if those principles aren't always ones that we personally uh, uh, agree with.
0: It's a pretty good baseline, I think. Okay, let's get into it. Who are some of the best presidents? And Can you give us some examples of things they've done or their character that put them up there for you?
1: Sure. I've always had difficulty in choosing one and saying that person was the best president because, you know, in a sense you're you're judging all of them by – Slightly different criteria. Some of the big issues, like I just mentioned, personal character and honesty and so forth are, uh, are universal, but they all dealt with uh, circumstances peculiar to their time. They dealt with Congresses uh, whose makeup changes with every election. None of them were dictators, so they often had to compromise uh, uh, and not get uh, all that they wanted. Uh, but among the best, certainly, would be the following. Uh, Grover Cleveland. He's the only president to serve two terms that were not consecutive. He was first elected in 1884, uh, ran for re-election in 1888, and though he won the popular vote, he lost in the electoral college. And uh, then came back in 1892, ran against the man who beat him, and became president a second time. Uh, I like Grover Cleveland because he was uh, very much a man of principle, and those. Principles that he believed in tend to align with mine. He was a believer in small government, uh, low taxes, less spending. Uh, uh, He was against the welfare state. He vetoed more bills than all the previous 21 presidents combined. He was for sound money, uh, not uh, inflated money. And uh, just a very good man, I think, all the way around on a personal level, uh, as just about as honest as the day is long. Uh, Another great one that is often overlooked because uh, he didn't preside over a war or massive policy changes or shifts or economic crises, and that's John Tyler. He was our 10th president, and he became president when uh, uh, the incumbent uh, on whose ticket he ran the previous year as vice president, uh, when that incumbent president died, that was William Henry Harrison who died within a month of taking office, and Tyler then came into office. And, you know, to to this day, when a vice president ascends to the presidency through the uh, resignation or the death of the president, we don't have the question come up of, well, is this new guy really the president? Uh, John Tyler set that precedent because At the time, that was a big question. It was the first time anything like this happened. And some of his opponents in Congress called him his accidency uh, because he really didn't come to the office by uh, choice for president of of the people. Uh, But John Tyler had to grapple with the immediate issue of, you know, did he have the same powers as Harrison, who was the president who died? And he made it plain that under the Constitution, as he read it, and I think he was right, uh he was not an acting president. He was not an interim president. He was not a part-time president. He was the president, uh, just as much as Harrison had been before him. And nobody questions that today, but it was Tyler who set uh, the tone for that. And he also, uh, I think, was a very courageous man. He actually opposed much of what Harrison stood for, uh, and uh, he championed sound money. He was against uh, rechartering a national bank. He was against uh, subsidies for local governments and businesses. And um, uh, I think was right on the issues. Um, and uh, a very good president. But, but uh, the the Whig Party turned against him, and he didn't even get renominated in 1844. But he served all but one month of a full term as president.
0: Wow. I, I like that. Um, I, I It's making me wonder whether we should consider, and obviously presidents don't die or get shot super duper often, but we are electing a vice president to be essentially like the substitute to become the president if something happens to the current president. I never think about that because I think they come as a pair, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if other people thought that. Maybe it's just me. Um Maybe that's something I need to reevaluate, but I don't think so because it's kind of taught and presented as they are a pair. Um, But do you think we kind of don't weigh the judgment on who the vice president nomination is as importantly as we should? Because it seems like in a lot of cases when this happens, it can either be great or it can be disastrous. And maybe for political reasons, like with Lincoln and his second election, you put someone who is like the opposite of you for political appeal,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should put more emphasis on who the vice president is and weigh that in our calculations. But maybe just as importantly, I wish uh, presidential uh, nominees and their parties, I wish they took that more seriously. I mean, the best example of, of them not taking it seriously is our current vice president, frankly. Uh, she was not chosen because of any particular competence or um, oratorical abilities, <laughs> I'm not, but, she, but she checked a few boxes. And uh, so uh, Joe Biden said, let's put uh, Kamala Harris on the ticket. And now there's an awful lot of buyer's remorse uh, about uh, about her. But you know you can't blame the voters if they don't put a high uh, import on the uh, vice presidential pick, because I mean they do run as a package, and um, and so you you know you sort of push to make your decision uh, based upon how you like the presidential candidate, and if you like that one and not the vice president, what can you do? Maybe the presidential candidate of the other party isn't uh, somebody you can vote for. So, you know, that's one of the limitations of politics. Uh, And it's another argument, I think, for keeping it a limited corner in our lives. Because um, when I go to the grocery store, I buy exactly what I want. And I come away rather happy with just about everything. I can even return something if I'm not happy. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. when I go into the world of politics... You know, I, I kind of have to go for the whole package, even if part of it uh, stinks to high heaven. So that's an argument for to me uh, for keeping government small in the first place, because it, it suffers from such serious flaws.
0: Yeah, it's funny because we often talk about how in politics and with policy and with parties, you have to vote for a bundle, even if you don't actually believe in every single part, because why should what you believe about health care have anything to do with your beliefs on foreign policy? Um it seems like we've done this with people too uh kind of ironically and maybe a little problematically. If you want to see listeners a example of Kamala Harris's um rhetorical skill there's there's a video out there from a few years ago of her talking about transitory inflation and <laughs> Garfield would be upset I think uh, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe is a good way to put it. Um okay I have one last question for you before the final question. Um, who are some of the worst presidents, in your opinion, and what makes them so?
1: I have ranked uh, one as, in my opinion, the worst of all presidents for a very long time. Um, there are days now when I think Joe Biden is giving that, that person a run for his money. But uh, I still think the worst of all the presidents we've had was Woodrow Wilson. Uh, on both a personal level as well as a presidential and policy level. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a, a unrepentant racist. He was, um, uh, he resegregated much of the federal government. Um, uh, in terms of policy, he was, uh, a radical interventionist. He was a progressive in the heyday of progressivism, which meant he really had, uh, considerable disdain for the limitations of his power placed upon him by the constitution, because he thought smart people like him should really run the show. And uh, because they know so much more than the rest of the public, Uh, he concentrated power to the best of his ability. He made government ever bigger. He gave us the uh, uh, income tax. He gave us the 17th amendment. He, um, uh, you know, he was, uh, just a very, very uh bad president and uh, he set the he set the precedent. a lot of people would say, "Well, what about f d r He gave us all these alphabet agencies He ballooned government so massively. yeah, well, one of the reasons he was able to do that is that Woodrow Wilson had set a precedent um And so I have to blame uh, him for that. And I also tangentially blame Teddy Roosevelt for giving us Woodrow Wilson, (laughs) whatever good Teddy did as president. He sort of undid when he ran as a third party candidate in 1912, handing the presidency to Woodrow Wilson.
0: Wow. Is there anyone else that uh,
1: comes close? I'm not fond of Jimmy Carter either. But I don't give him the bad rap that he's most often given. Uh, I think he was personally not a dishonest person, and he did give us some deregulation that was uh, very necessary, airlines, trucking, and even beer retailing. Uh, But by and large, he was an ineffective and relatively incompetent uh, administrator. He was a micromanager, which rarely works in the management of anything. You even had to go to him to find out if you could get permission to play on the white house tennis courts. And any sound administrator in his position would have said, that's not a decision I need to make. Let's have the groundskeeper make that decision or whoever. But uh, Jimmy spent a lot of time micromanaging uh, other people. So they're among the worst. Um, and uh, yeah, that. uh, I, I'm hesitating only because there are so many that I, mm-hmm. I don't rate very highly. Um, uh, those come to mind. Uh, let me give you an example of one who was kind of a mixed bag. He did some great things, and then he did some bad things, yeah. and that would be Andrew Jackson. I mean, I love the fact that he killed the first or second bank of the United States, a kind of Federal Reserve of its day. Uh he killed it. And we had then an extended period of relative free banking in the country, no central bank. He vetoed uh, bills that would have doled out federal money for so-called uh, internal improvements, uh, which really were subsidies to uh, business and local governments. Um, but then, of course, he was uh, the man who engineered the Trail of Tears, the forced expulsion of Indians uh, from places like Georgia, where I live, uh, on out to Oklahoma, a very tragic episode in American history. I understand the conditions that prompted him to make that decision. He wasn't inherently an evil, nasty, rotten person who wanted to harm the Indians. But um, he just made an error in judgment that uh, led to some catastrophic outcomes. But you know, nonetheless, mixed bag though he was, um, we had presidents who were better and some who were uh, far worse.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of this and for taking the time to talk to us today. I have learned a ton, and I'm sure my listeners have as well. Um, I have one last question for you. Okay. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on, and why?
1: Yeah, uh, I have changed my mind on a few things, but probably the single biggest issue would be uh, the death penalty. Uh, For decades, I uh, favored it. And, you know, I observed that there were certainly people who richly deserved it. I still think there are people who richly deserve it. But I also came to understand in time that uh, the death penalty turns out to be another failed government program. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, just too many uh, instances, I think, out there of people who were sent to the chair or lethal injection, who it turns out upon closer examination didn't do it and that really troubles me and uh, so i've come to oppose it if i thought government uh, was uh, uh, far be- better at it and more efficient at it and more careful about it than it is you know maybe i'd be persuaded to support it again but i don't see that happening anytime soon <laughs> so uh, I, i'm against it simply because uh, it uh, too many uh, innocent people fall through the cracks and there is a better alternative which may be life in prison or you know but um, but the death penalty itself i have come to have great misgivings about
0: once again i'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight i'd also like to thank you for listening to the great antidote podcast It means a lot the great antidote is sound engineered by rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at libertyfund.org. Thank you.